Be good. <laughs> Friend, stranger, relative, thank you so much for tuning in to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. This here is your friend and pal and relative, Andrew. I am here in Oaxaca, Mexico, with my wife and my little dog, Pele, and I'm feeling fortunate, crazily, crazily fortunate, and there are a number of reasons why I feel that way, not the least of which is being able to just be on this journey in the first place, but I am feeling fortunate because I got to interview the person you're about to hear from today, my mom, Janine Gaudet. Janine Gaudet is a nurse of more than 50 years. She's going to tell you all about what she's done in her life, and it's impressive, and I'm, I'm so proud of her for what she is and who she is. And I think you're going to just like her because she's a cool lady and uh, we have very different views on faith and religion and it just does not matter even a little how different we feel about things. I respect her so much and I I think that's a, a good way to get along. You don't have to agree with people on things to respect their position. So uh, there's that element of this podcast. There's also, uh, we talk about death and faith and uh philosophy and she tells me some great family stories and i just feel fortunate to be able to have had that conversation with this woman who i wasn't sure i was going to see on this journey and it's been a while since i saw my mom so it was great to catch up with her we spent a week hanging out with her and it was fantastic we just played basically she and tiffany get along really well she loves pele which is cool she actually brought him uh couple new little tennis balls and a bag of treats and that that was all it took every morning when she got up he was just thrilled to see her it was great practically dancing every time she came in the room um one thing i i didn't ask my mom about was music and music has been a big part of her life she's a great piano player and singer uh, she played in, in choirs and churches my whole life and and much more before I was ever around, and still does, still plays music and sings. And I cannot hear uh, a female musician, uh, particularly a singer or piano player, without thinking about her. It's just affected the way I hear music. She was actually the very first music I ever really realized I was listening to was my mom playing piano and singing. I'll never forget it. I was a little boy, and she played these very somber Catholic hymns that were uh i don't know they just they just trigger weird emotion in you even as a little kid who you have no reason to be sad necessarily but anyhow so most of the music that you're going to hear in this podcast are uh, female performers that i really like that uh just i don't know they kind of remind me of my mom so there you have it that's the inspiration for the musical choices in this podcast i hope you're liking the show we're sure enjoying making the show if you want to uh, reach out to us and tell us what you think, you can send me an email at mtp.dog forward slash contact, or you can write us a review on iTunes, which is really nice. Those are helpful. Or you can go to patreon.com, and if you don't feel like telling us anything, you can just give us a dollar a month. Or, or, and this is a great option for you people out there, 
You don't have to do shit. You don't have to do anything. You can just listen to this show and enjoy it because it's free and we like doing it. That's, that's all I have to say. I hope you're having fun and doing interesting things. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Janine Gaudet, a.k.a. my mom. Until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for coming to Oaxaca, Mom. I really appreciate it. Uh, We've been hanging out kind of constantly for, what, five, six days, something like that? Today's number six. I just thought about it this morning. This is the most time you and I have spent around each other since I was like 18. Probably. So in like 22 years, this is the most time. Yeah, because even in New Orleans, I never stayed that long. And I was working. Or you left. Yeah, yeah. And just like not having anything to do but have fun for six days has been fantastic. Like just to, I don't know, if anybody's listening and your parents are still alive and you get along pretty well, it's worth going somewhere fun together and just just hanging out. Like we've been just, seems like just talking and talking and talking and we've waited until the very last day to record this podcast. So thank you uh, for everything. Um. There's a few things in particular I want to talk to you about because we've been talking about family and about faith and about all these things, but um, I've intentionally left a few things off the table oh, <laughs> of our discussions. Look yes. out. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I want to talk to you about your career because you have a fascinating career and a subject that kind of scares the shit out of me. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say that word in front of you. I've never sweared in front of you before. Andrew, you've heard me say that word many times. What, what word? Shit. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's going to be a good podcast. Uh, so, um, yeah, your career to me is super interesting. And um, I don't know, I mean, your, your history, uh, just, I mean, where you grew up was kind of unique. I mean, you, you've got a birthday coming up. Right. And you'll be? 74. 74 years old. I mm-hmm. thought you were 74 now. No, I call myself 74 in my 74th year. I see. Ah. I see. That's very literal. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be almost three quarters of a century almost. old. Almost. That's incredible. Cause, and you've yeah. watched the world change in enormous ways. So yeah. I, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about that. So maybe we'll start there. You were born in 1945 in Peru, Illinois. What was, what was the town that you were born into like? as a little girl? Well, it was small. Um, It was surrounded by farming communities, but the people that lived in the town, most of them worked at a factory called West Clocks, Mm. and they made clocks. But during the war, they made bombs, parts, timers for bombs. Mm -hmm. So it really grew. It was a large, large factory. And it seemed like Everybody either worked at West Clocks or they worked in something that supported the people who lived in the town so that people could work at West Clocks. Right. Um, it was an enormous place. And, you know, it died before, well, it died after I left, I think. But, you know, it, it started dying after there wasn't a whole lot of need for the kind of clocks that they made. The digital world and everything came in. But West Clocks was sort of the, the humming thing of the town. It was also on the river, the Illinois River, so there was a lot of barge traffic. Mm -hmm. Trains came through, but I don't think we were a big delivery. But trucks, I mean, we were a good spot for Mm -hmm. transport. 
Um, so it was, it was small. Most people knew each other. It was divided by churches mm-hmm. from the beginning of the town. The Polish people settled in one part of town, the Germans in another, the Irish in another, um, and they built their own church. And a lot of the community revolved around those Catholic churches. And then, of course, there were other churches as well. But I would say that at least 50% of the town was Catholic, and everybody knew their ethnicity. They, everybody knew, I'm Irish, I'm Polish, I'm this or that. <clears throat> so that was kind of a nice thing to know, but it did divide the town in yeah. a way. Um, and all of the churches had their own school, which meant it was small mm-hmm. and taught by nuns. We didn't. I don't remember ever having a lay teacher in grade grade school. They really? were all nuns. All nuns. Wow. My brothers went to the Catholic high school out on the edge of town. There was a Benedictine monastery, mm. and it devastated me that I couldn't go to high school with my twin brother because yeah. we'd always been in school together, and I had to go to the public high school. So he would drive me when he was old enough to drive, and take me to school so he could see the girls. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we were we were the source of supply for dates and things for each other. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, we'd have these parties at our house, you know, and I'd invite my friends, he'd invite his, and we would just hang out. Yeah. I can't imagine what it's like to have a twin. Yeah. I mean, you... And I couldn't imagine what it was like not to. Yeah. I mean, I always had my twin. Yeah. You guys so. banded together. Did your older brothers pick on you at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> did, did all the brothers, including yeah. your twins? <laughs> well, I mean, I was the only girl. Yeah. And I was considered the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though Jerry and I were like probably minutes apart, but I was considered the, the youngest. And, oh, they would just do things like try to scare me in the middle of the night, <laughs> you know, doing stuff like that. Yeah. Nothing bad. <laughs> sure, sure. Just typical stuff. I wonder how much of that, like, because I've always perceived you as a, like, no nonsense sort of sort of person like you if you see something unjust or unfair or uncool you're going to say something to whoever is making it happen or whoever's responsible which i've always really appreciated i wonder how much of like your brothers messing with you and you being the only girl contributed to that or was it i mean your mom seemed like really i mean i i met her as an old lady you know i didn't know her when she was younger and you know more like a working person, but was she like that? Was she pretty no nonsense, or I think she was. Um, you know, she grew up on a farm mm-hmm. and grew up in a day when her her father told her, "There's no need for you to go to high school. You're a woman." Yeah. Um, she was smart, and back then, if you were smart, they passed you through grades. You didn't have to do all of them. So she probably finished maybe five or six grades, but she graduated from eighth grade. It's just. You know, she skipped a few. And so she was pretty young when she would have gone to high school, but she didn't go. She went to work for, you know, later on, but she helped my grandmother. They had the big uh, truck farm Mm -hmm. and a lot of workers there during the harvest time, and she would help feed them and help her mom do stuff. Um, And so she, she did not, she did not go to school. And she married, um, I guess she was about 19 maybe 20 at the most. So she was young, Mm -hmm. and she had a baby shortly after, within that first year, and the baby died at birth. And then shortly after that, her husband died. 
So she was a widow, and she probably was 22 years old. Oh, my God. And she decided to be a nurse, just like that. Really? And so she took the test, and she got in without any high school. Wow. Of course, nursing wasn't as technology-oriented as it was as it is now. Yeah. But um, she went to nursing school, and she graduated top of her class, did great. And when she graduated, she and her classmates decided to drive to San Francisco. Yeah. Just these four women alone in my grandfather's car. <laughs> 1930-something. Yeah. Right? Well, she graduated from nursing school in 1934. Wow. And so I'm not sure the timing exactly, but I know that the Golden Gate Bridge wasn't finished. But that was what they wanted to see. That was their goal. Two, two things. They wanted to see the Golden Gate Bridge, and they wanted to drive to the top of Pikes Peak. <laughs> and they did it. Yeah. So, you know, to me, a woman at that time, especially from the community where she grew up, which is the same one I grew up in, we were behind the times. Um, things that were considered, you know, in New York were out of the question for us. Yeah. And so... That was, to me, a very brave and adventuresome thing to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, and she did it, you know. And that was her way of healing from the grief. Rather than just becoming the widow, she became the nurse. I just kept hoping. I just kept hoping. The wife would become Spent all this time trying to play now. I found my way here. See, I've been having me a real hard time, but it feels so nice to know I'm gonna be. Just kept dreaming. Yeah, I just kept dreaming. It wasn't very hard. I spent all this time. Did she talk about that loss with you at all? You know, it was a long time before I realized it. I remember going to the cemetery with her once because that's a big thing in where I grew up. You went to the cemetery. Um, at least during Memorial Day time, and took flowers. But you went other times, too. And so I must have been visiting probably my great-grandparents' graves. And she walked me over to this grave, and it was her first husband and the baby. And, you know, she said, told me who they were. And I, I don't know how old I was. I may have been, you know, seven, eight I just know that it occurred to me then, I have a brother, a half-brother, but just the same, a brother. Um, and that was, you know, that sort of changed how I saw my mom, because um, I hadn't, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Wow. Boy, he'd be, how old would he be now? That well, was my mom would be, she was born in 1908. The baby was probably born, what, 1928? 29, something like that. So he would, you know, in his he, 90s, would, wow. he would be a World War II veteran that would, you know, yeah. be in his late 90s, I wow. guess. I, 
can't do the math this fast this early in don't the worry morning. about it don't worry about the math that's incredible <laughs> it's just an amazing thing to think of and your your mom i mean losing a baby for any parent has got to be just brutal it I is can't imagine i imagine and then your spouse right there after right so young i you know i think about how in the world did she even survive that hmm. um now the the family that she grew up in and that I also grew up in was very close-knit. The cousins, the aunts, the uncles, they all lived nearby. And they gathered frequently. So there was a lot of woman-to-woman kind of support that I think is lacking in our society. It's not as easy anyway. It's not built in. Um, because people just didn't move away. They stayed on the farm and they married people that were from local and they you know, they stayed nearby. So um, my mother moved the furthest away from her mother was 20 miles in her whole life. What my memory of her, particularly towards like, towards the end of her life, her mother came to live with her. And, and your mom lived in a small place, you know, a really small little like two or three bedroom place and uh, she moved her mother in to, mm-hmm. to, to care for her in her last days. And then you went to her house to care for your mother in her last days. Mm-hmm. Um, has that been a tradition in your family to like sort of be there with your, with your I parents? I think so. I'm, one of my early, early, early memories as a child was being taken to my great aunt's house, Aunt Nellie. And... Um, because my grandmother's mother, my great-grandmother, was dying. And she was in Aunt Nellie's house. And they all helped take care of her. So that was, back then, people didn't go to hospitals to die anyway. That was just not what you did. You died at home, unless you had an accident or something and you happened to be in the hospital. But if you were dying of old age or a chronic illness, you didn't spend your time in a hospital. And nursing homes were just, they just didn't exist, I don't think. I don't remember there being. Maybe convalescent homes, people who didn't have family. But people took care of each other. They took care of their family. So, um, But when my mom took care of her mom, my grandmother had had a stroke when she was maybe 90, 91, she was a very active lady. She'd get up on the roof of her house and sweep out her gutters. <laughs> and, you know, she never slowed down yeah. and never saw age as something that had to hold her back. She wasn't a rocking chair old person. Um, so when she had this stroke, it was devastating for her. She couldn't speak anymore. And she had to have a feeding tube, um, which was something that probably wouldn't have been done today, probably would have made that decision not to but anyhow they they did it but my mom um, had my grandmother come to her home and take care of her and my grandmother lived almost five years so my mom did everything for her they had help from home health nurses um, but for the most part my mom didn't like having help coming in she wanted to do it herself once in a while they'd hire somebody to come and give my mom a break Um, And then every once in a while, they would hire somebody to come so my mom could come and visit me because I didn't live anywhere nearby. And, you know, you kids were growing up, and she wanted to spend time with us too. And we weren't able to go there all the time. It was a long ways because we lived in Mississippi by then. 
So, but she she did it for five years. And by the time that was finished, um, my mom was a nurse and working actively when my grandmother had her stroke. Um, she never got to go back to work because she was, she's only 16 years younger than her mother. So <laughs> when my grandmother died, she was 95. My mother was already pretty old then too, um, 79, I guess. And so she never did go, but wasn't able to go back to work. Um, it wore her out. She had heart disease by that time and she just couldn't do it. Damn. Yeah, that was hard for her. Yeah, she, and I mean, then then she lost my brother. Your brother. My brother was killed um, probably right around that time because Jerry died in nineteen eighty. Eighty nine or something no, eighty eight. Eighty eight. Yeah. So you know, it was not long after my grandmother had died, and um, that was pretty much what put my mom down into being unhealthy. I remember that really distinctly. Like I, I, that whole period from the moment you got that phone call. Oh, yeah. It was our last day of school. Mm-hmm. I was like in third grade or something. We came home and you said you were, you just hadn't been feeling right for like a week. You're just like uncomfortable Un- and uneasy. weird. Yeah. And then that phone call came in from that moment until like, I don't know. Because it seemed like there was a, a series of things, like there was there the was. funeral, and then there was memorials and different things, like his, his military career, and I could just see your mom changing, mm-hmm. like from this like kind of stronger, funny, you know, like she was so nurturing. I mean, her mm-hmm. grandmotherliness was just at peak grandma. She was mm-hmm. so sweet, would sing these songs, and like remember the way she would wash our hands in the sink before bed and cook for you she loved when we came yeah that (laughs) little drawer she had full of sweets and like cooking chocolate and stuff but i just remember from that moment when your brother passed like her whole thing changed and she became kind of a different person and uh, i was there with you uh that last summer you know when she when you were there to help her pass i mean that was just so crazy to me to like to watch you do your work, you know, mm-hmm. and, and me being like a prepubescent weirdo. 12 year old. Yeah, this crazy person. Uh, yeah, that was, that was so intense. Well, it was a, it was kind of a, not magical summer, but it was an, it would, it would have been, yeah. I'm sure for you, because my mom lived right next door to a big park, mm-hmm. the park I grew up in, the yeah. park that you always went to when we would visit my mom. Mm-hmm. And you were old enough, I could let you go and yeah. just, play and run and meet the girls and do whatever you did. Yeah, I um, did. <laughs> And I didn't have to worry about you. I knew you were okay, yeah. and Colleen too. Um, although Colleen didn't stay as much. She went back home. She was a little older, and she went back home in Mississippi and stayed there part of that time. But we were only there six weeks, but it was, I think, a really good experience for all of us to have mom at home and to know that you know her, her family and friends could come and visit her. And she could be free to do what she, how she wanted to do her dying days. Um, being at home like that with hospice care was just a gift for her. It was a gift for her, and it, um, I mean, it was exactly what you were trained to do. So I, I want to get to your career. What's okay. interesting is everything we've been talking about is like it's a circle. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like it's all fed into what you are as a human being and as a professional. You knew super early you wanted to be a nurse. 
I never knew anything different. Maybe I could rearrange the art that hangs upon these walls. Or maybe I could not. The masterpiece that lies within this room has yet to leave these halls and break through every door. But I lie here on my back. I stare I honestly say that to people and they look at me like, yeah, right. I honestly have no conscious memory of me ever being someone who didn't know I was going to be a nurse when I grew up. Everything about my play, my dolls were always needing something done. Um, I would, my mom, as I got older, she would bring home things from the hospital like IV tubing and <laughs> crazy things. Um, but my dolls, and they were always in the hospital. They always needed a, a nurse. My favorite book was Nancy Nurse. But all of that was led by my inside view of myself. I was a nurse. That was it. Never any questions. And I think about how much of a gift that was for me. I never had to worry about what was I going to do for a living? Where was I going to go when I graduated from high school? Um, It was always just where was I going to go to learn how to be a nurse? Not was I going to be a nurse? I never, never had a doubt um, so I feel like that was a, a, a wonderful gift to have that. And with that came that all those gifts that you need to be an effective nurse. And then the other thing that shaped me was my senior year in high school, I had a ruptured appendix, and it was not detected until I had already developed lots of complications, and I was probably as near to death as anybody can get and not actually pass on, you know. Um, And that experience of all the people who took care of me and the people who helped me through that and helped me survive, um, my mother said, oh, well, you're probably not going to want to be a nurse anymore because you've seen all these things firsthand. You've experienced them. And I said, no, it it just, I think it's part of what is going to help me. Um, So over the years, the first years of my nursing career, um, you know, I was I loved nursing school. I did well in nursing school. I always had a job and worked hard at it and did well at it. But over those first maybe 10 years of nursing, it seemed like gradually I would get assigned. If there was somebody dying, they would assign me to that patient. And finally, one day I said to my manager, why, why do I always get the dying patients? And she said, because you're not scared. When I tell somebody else, you know, they have to take care of someone who's dying, they're like, oh, you know, can I have that patient? They found that fearful. And I finally decided that I had been allowed to have that experience of being so close to death and knowing what that felt like and the thoughts that went through my head, the fears that I had, um, helped me to be able to be present to someone who is experiencing that, experiencing that, I wasn't afraid to talk to them. I wasn't afraid to enter the room and be intimate with the idea of dying. So finally, I decided, okay, I never got a bachelor's degree in nursing. I went to a hospital nursing school, which was traditional back then. 
But by the time I'd been a nurse for 10, 15 years, the bachelor degree nurse was becoming more and more the goal. So I decided I want a bachelor's degree in nursing, but it was difficult. Um, you had to go back and do a lot of things over because I hadn't had that college backup. So I went to the University of Memphis because by that time I lived in Mississippi and very close to Memphis and told my counselor what I wanted to do was have more knowledge about how to care for the dying. That was my specialty. And nurse practitioners didn't exist yet. So I was encouraged to write a degree. They had a, a department in the university where you could design your own, de own degree if you were an adult learner, and you had to have people advise you. And part of your degree would be a thesis project where you would not write an academic thesis. You had to write a project, and you had to go out and do it. And it had to demonstrate what was it that you were getting your degree in. So it was a huge undertaking. And all four of you kids were already born. You, were, <laughs> you weren't quite two years old oh when God. I went back to college. But I loved it. Oh, I was so excited with school. And I, I mean, I was a straight-A student. I graduated summa cum laude, and I'm not that much of a brain. But I just loved it. It seemed so easy. And I've heard that from a lot of adults, that when they go to college as an adult, all of a sudden, all their life experiences make the classes easier and learning easier. So anyway, my project was, um, at the time, hospice was a word that very few, very few people had heard of. And a lot of people thought it was awful. It was killing people. It was euthanasia. It was not an honored thing. But... Um, there was an organization in town that had gotten a grant, and their job was to educate the medical world about what is hospice and encouraged home health agencies to develop a hospice program and also to develop volunteers. And so I went to that agency, and I actually worked part-time for them and discovered that the way they did volunteers was just people said, I want to help. And they would say, okay. And they would go help. And I decided, you know, you really, I was looking at the few hospice programs that were in existence in the United States, and they were training their volunteers and screening them. So I thought, well, there's my project. I will design a volunteer program for them, design the training, the screening process, um, and even a process for deciding which volunteers would do the best with certain patients and in certain situations. So it was massive. Oh my, it was probably way too big. I didn't probably need to do as much as I did, but the more I got into it, the more I liked it. So that's what I did, and that was my project. And then I, when I got all done, discovered that hospitals weren't gonna hire me as anybody special because I didn't have a bachelor's degree in nursing. So then I thought, okay, I need to tag a licensable degree onto this one. And social work made the most sense. So I went to school and got my master's in social work and then went to work for a hospice as a social worker. And you're, but you're 
other degree is in thanatology? Or? Well, that was the degree, the original. You, the bachelor's mm-hmm. was in thanatology, clinical thanatology, <laughs> yeah. which meant nothing to most people. Right, the study of death. It I mean, was it's just clinical study. It's such a, when you think of like a nurse, an infirmera, you know, someone who is like in the hospital or in your home trying to keep you alive, and your focus was trying to help people die with dignity, because mm-hmm. you're going to. You're just gonna croak at some point, and the least, well, probably the least, but the most someone can do is to help you do that with some measure of dignity. And you watched it happen in your home (laughs) as a child. Um, You nearly went through it yourself. You, I mean, it's just been such a huge part. Death was everywhere. I mean, patients were dying all the time. But we were in a society where there was that yin and yang. There'd been so much discovered in medicine that would prolong life, that would cure things, that would prevent people from dying from things that normally they would have died from. And it was an exciting time. It was good that we were saving people that we would not have saved before. But there was that yin and yang of, do we go too far? Mm -hmm. You know, are we saving people for a quality of life that makes sense? Are we just saving them because we can? And I think hospice was born from that because there was a need for us to be centered on, yes, we we need to try to cure people. We need to try to extend people's lives. But we also need to protect their quality of life and their dignity. And I think hospice came out of that, that need. Um, So it, it seemed like the natural place for me. Yeah, and you've chased that down your whole career since I was a child anyhow. Yeah, I mean, mostly f- since that point. But the thing that I did discover very quickly was when I was working as a social worker, that's a licensable degree and you're using people skills mm-hmm. a lot. There's, I mean, you can't put your finger on what does a social worker do as easily as you can what does a nurse do. Mm-hmm. And I found that And I had to be very careful because I worked for an agency as a social worker. I was not working as a nurse. So I was not allowed to do anything that would have been in the realm of nursing. So if I saw a patient that was having problems and I I knew what to do, I couldn't do it. Mm. I would have to call the nurse that was assigned to that patient. And it became hard. And so I thought, well, now why am I making this so hard? I can be a nurse and use the people skills that I learned as a social worker, and no one's going to say, well, you can't do that because that's a social work skill. It's a people skill. So I was able to do the nursing much more effectively because I had the master's in nursing, I mean, in social work, but I didn't get paid extra for it. It was just a piece of, of who I was, and it worked very well for me. Yeah. You've always, in my estimation, put the person first. I remember our dinner conversations when you were, um, you had a very difficult hospice job, particularly when I was like in from eighth grade through high school. I mean, you were out in the street, out in the street <laughs> in bad neighborhoods and like rough places, bad neighborhoods, a weird word, but like just in rough places where mm-hmm. you know, people are dying, like young people with AIDS it or was, older people AIDS with AIDS. Yeah. Very much in my neighborhood where I worked. And I just remember you would come home and tell us stories about these people. And, uh, you know, it, of course they were ill and you were dealing with their illness, but you would tell us stories about their lives. Mm-hmm. And you were basically, you know, interviewing these people and, and befriending them in a way that, like, 
I mean, it's one thing to like make a friend on an airplane that you know you're never going to see again. Okay, goodbye. You know, you have a conversation, but you would befriend these people in ways that it almost sounded like some of them had never experienced. Do you know what I mean? Like they just they'd been through just hard lives and sometimes very brief lives, and they when this you know sweet white lady coming out of Mississippi was talking to them and just <laughs> listening to their stories and sharing. It was a, it, it was a beautiful thing to me. It almost felt like a different kind of medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just like pumping them full of IVs of painkillers and, and things to help them relax. You were giving them the medicine of normal human interaction and compassion and care. Well, that was one of the be- beauties of hospice. Hospice has always had the philosophy that the family is the patient unit. It's not just the person who's ill. Mm-hmm. It's their world, whether it's you know blood family or whether it's like in, when I was first doing hospice out in people's homes and AIDS was so prevalent, a lot of the community that I worked with was the gay community. And these people often had been shunned by their family. Sometimes the first time that the family knew this person, their son or their daughter was gay was when they were told their daughter, son or daughter was dying from AIDS, and they would, they would reject them. And people were afraid of AIDS. They didn't want to be around them. Right. It was like the leprosy of the time. Right. And um, so it was a dual challenge for me. I had never been in the inner city as far as you know, walking the streets and going behind the doors and into the homes. I had never done that. I had very little cultural knowledge of um, what it's like to be that poor. Most of my patients were either gay and dying from AIDS, or the other part of my population was the African-American population. And so it was a whole new thing for me, too. So it, it, you had two choices. You opened yourself up to it and went in and became a part of them, or you came in as this person who knows more than they do, and I'm going to tell you how to do this. Yeah. And I had learned from my training for the volunteers to look out for that kind of person and not allow them to be a patient care volunteer. If they came in and said, you know, I, I know what to do, I'll take over, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. I looked for the people who had the empathy and the compassion to just be accepting and open. Yeah. And that's what you had to do. So it wasn't really, it wasn't really... Um, that I was, you know, just taking care of the physical symptoms that this patient had. I had to also allow this family to learn about death, to learn about how to care for this patient, to learn how we can do this in a way that would be comfortable for the patient, and because that was new to them too. Yeah. Home care at that level was, I mean, they that was a time when you took patients to the hospital. Yeah. You know, you need a doctor, you need a nurse, you need a hospital. So to tell these people you can't stay in the hospital to die, you have to go home and be cared for or go to a nursing home, was just like, no, I can't do this. Yeah. So it was a lot of work to teach families um, how they can care for their loved one and that they can do it. Yeah. Um, and that was... That was a beautiful thing to watch, to see people develop the strength and the courage and the confidence that they knew, well, I can do this. Um, and also, I really got to know people because it wasn't a one-day thing for the most part. 
you came in and you visited frequently and you, I think death kind of breaks down the barriers. You get to know people a lot quicker um, in a time like that. So by the time my patients would die, I was incorporated in the family. I wasn't just the nurse that came and cared for them. A lot of times, you know, I would attend the funerals. Sometimes I was asked to talk at the funerals and actually give testimony about the person as I experienced them at that point. So it was it was a wonderful experience. I loved it. It yeah. was hard work. Um, sometimes I know that my family at home was worried, where are you at 2 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> are you safe? Um, I would never take security with me because I always felt like that was a slap in the face for these families. I was fine to come there in the daytime. I should be fine to come at night. And they would look after me. Yeah. They would say, we'll be watching for you. We'll stand out the curb. We'll make sure your car is safe, whatever. Um, yeah. So it, it was a stretching and learning experience for me. And I feel like I brought something to the families as well that yeah. was... Um, I mean, it extended to the dinner table. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it went from their house to ours mm-hmm. and it taught me lessons. I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, sometimes our dinner conversation was a little morose. You know, like <laughs> we, I was accused of that a lot. <laughs> you, you have this incredible knack to be telling a story that the casual observer doesn't know is going to end in a death. Yeah. You know, like suddenly... Somewhere in the conversation, oh, and then that person dies. It's Isn't like, oh, that a shit. microcosm, though, of what life is it's like? exactly. You never know when it's coming. It's just yeah. kind of funny to I experience mean, it, in the conversation. It is how we're all going to end. think about death uh quite a bit and i don't know if how much of it is just having grown up in that environment where that was like really discussed kind of casually you know like you weren't flippant in any i don't mean to suggest that you're flippant about it but it was just part of our normal Mm -hmm. uh discourse and i I would think about death as a young person but as i've gotten older and had um quasi mystical experiences with uh psychedelics and uh (laughs) and just you know I nearly drowned once and I've had a few little brushes that have freaked me right out. And, uh, the, the idea of, of dying the way that you make it seem, seems all right. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that that your take on it and what you've seen through your life and the way you've helped people. And and it's worth mentioning that you're still nursing. You're not retired. Mm -mm. You're not still doing hospice. (laughs) Yeah. You're still caring for the sick and dying. So, but that the way that you've managed to look at it and that you brought it back to people's homes and you brought it to these special places and and have made it more than just like this, here's this thing we can't cure. It's like, no, here's this thing you just, you must do. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not that something that we're, we're trying to prevent. It's this, okay, now we're doing this. Like we taught you to walk, you learned how to tie your shoes, you've, you've made other people, you've made your decisions, and now you have to die, and here's how we're gonna do it. Yeah. That is kind of comforting. In that, in that it's just like a biological function that requires an emotional um, 
action from the people who love you. It's, well, it's definitely a spectrum. And, you know, there, we have expectations of when we should die, ages when it's appropriate. There's a big difference between a 95-year-old who's dying in, in the hospice where I work, because now I work in an inpatient hospice. I don't go out to people's homes anymore. Um, and there's a huge difference in that room versus the room of a 52-year-old that's dying of a brain tumor. One is seeming very natural and the other is not. Um, and how the families are and what their needs are and, and the difference in the room um, is it is there for sure. Because um, in the old person, the traditional it's time to die person, you have a lot of celebration, you have a lot of, a lot of memory, you know, the pictures and all the things in the rooms that the families bring because we encourage that and um, talking about what they were like and celebrating their life really. It's not that there's not sadness, but it's just a natural period at the end of a sentence. The room where that period should never have been, in that part of the sentence, there should have been a lot more to the story. That's a little different. It's hard, and it's it's kind of, not ironic, I don't know the right word, but you don't see as many pictures in that person's room. You don't see as much, because it's painful for the families. It's almost painful to look at this man who's, who has children who are in high school maybe or college and or babe, new grandchildren, you know, um, it's painful. So it's most of what I see in the rooms of the patients that are dying out of sync are the things that they liked, like their sports favorite team or, you know, things like that. Um, it's not the story of their life because the families and we also recognize this this story got cut short in our minds. Now, obviously, that you know, there's a there's a time for everything, and it doesn't always fall the way we think it should. But dying of a brain tumor when you're in your fifties is not what anybody anticipates when they're twenty five. You know, um, so it's you have to. I mean, I feel like I'm turning this dial as I walk down the hall. And to see my patients, because this room has this kind and this room has that. Um, they're all different. And you can't be the same in each room. You have to adjust. That moment of death. I mean, you've been there for so many moments when a person breathes their last and they're done. They're finished. The biological thing is just over. What is that moment like for you? You know, if you've ever attended a birth, I always felt like the birth is an opening of a book. This is a brand new story, brand new book, brand new child. Who knows what's going to get written in that book? And when I'm with someone who has just died, I feel like, okay, their book is just closed. You know, I don't know what's been written in it, but there's been a lot. They've lived a life. And so there's that reverence you feel, no matter how they've lived their life. They wrote a story with it, and that book just closed. So I see it kind of like that. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to be as tearful, although I do frequently cry. You can't, you you shouldn't, I don't think, turn that off. Um, Families don't want to see a stoic nurse standing there. If you feel like hugging and you have tears, I think that's what you should do. But... um, it's just a very reverent moment. I feel, you know, the closing of a a book or the 
you know, a, a ship leaving shore kind of thing. And there, there's a story that I frequently heard when I was learning about grief. They used the story of a person on a boat waving goodbye to the people on the shore, and they're, the people on the shore sad that they're leaving. And as soon as they're out of sight of the people on the shore, they're in the sight of a whole new group of people who are saying, welcome home, you're here, we're so glad to see you. So it kind of puts a perspective on it, um, for my faith belief anyway, that this person has passed from this part of their life, but they've just entered into the next more beautiful and the more um, the real journey destination of their life. In your experience, you said that there's like a lot of you're not just caring for that patient. Mm-hmm. You're you're part of this familial and community thing that's happening. Are there things that you wish that people knew more about in the dying process? Like so, say I'm you know I'm with a friend or a family member, and my family member's dying or my mm-hmm. friend is dying. I'm sure you see the best and the worst of people in those moments. <laughs> are there things you wish were like compulsory in our education process about this? You know, one of the biggest things that we struggle with in hospice is people don't have a knowledge of the physiology of their healthy body, much less the physiology of a dying body. And there is a very unique physiology of a patient who's dying from an illness, not a sudden accident, but, you know, an illness that is slowly taking their life. Um, There is a physiology, and we struggle all the time with families' expectations that, well, a dying, I mean, this person should eat, you have to eat, or this person should have IVs, you have to have fluids, Um, or this person shouldn't sleep all the time, we want them awake so we can visit with them or we can talk to them. Um, and the, bio, the body, the physiological process of dying is different. I think our, our creator made our bodies to know how to be born. And often I'll use that analogy with families. I'll talk about, you know, when you were pregnant, did you will any of the things that happened to your body? Because there's a whole lot of things that change. I mean, your, your boobs get huge and, you know, you're... You can't see it, but your pelvis bones get soft. The baby's head is soft. All these things are made to support birth. And you don't will any of them. But it's the same thing about dying. Your appetite goes away because your digestive system no longer can digest food. If you give a person fluids artificially when they're dying, the fluids don't stay and nourish their body it leaks out into their tissues, and so their hands swell, their feet swell, their lungs swell. It makes death more painful and more uncomfortable. But as a culture, we have this notion that it is wrong not to feed somebody. It's wrong not to have IVs at the time of death. But it's not. You know, it's like going against nature to say we have to have all those things. And it is a transition. Some families come to it faster than others. Some families, when they get to our hospice, we're giving patients IVs. We're slowly going to try to turn them away, turn them off, turn them down by showing the families the signs that say, hey, this is not really helping. This is hurting. 
Um, but you can't slap people in the face with that. They have sure. to come to it. Our culture, everything they see on television, the medical shows, you know, <laughs> it doesn't support the physiology of dying. And so that's one of the things that I wish people understood so that they wouldn't feel like we're trying to hurry up death. We're trying to speed it up. Um, we're trying to take their loved one in control, you know. It's not that. So it would be helpful if people understood more about that. And little by little, we're beginning to see it. The easiest families to work with are ones who have had a loved one in hospice before, or they've experienced the dying process before. And they, it, they'll say, yeah, I know. That's how it was with my dad when he was dying. They were given him fluids, and his hands swelled up, and he had noisy lungs. You know, he sounded like he was drowning, that kind of thing. Mm. And they would say, yeah. I understand. Okay, let's not do that this time. It's so interesting that your human body, when you think of sickness or you're ill, that things are not working correctly, right? That the system's breaking down and it's failing. But, I mean, the physiology uh, of, your, of dying, where your, your body's shutting down in a mechanized way that's working perfectly. Mm-hmm. While you're sick and while things are breaking, that particular mechanism is working just fine that's really bizarre that is a hard thing for anybody to get their head around really you know what i mean that that Mm. you're well this person's sick his body's not working right of course we should try to why would the death physiology or the death mechanism be working right if everything else is failing why is that working so well but But that's that's just the way it's a continuum yeah at one point i mean the body does try to heal itself it's always trying to heal itself um, and that's the best mechanism we have for our f- survival. But there is a point when the body knows, I've, you know, there's no more, there's nothing left that I can do to fix what's going on. And that's when the physiology and the, the gears of the dying process. And it's not a long process. Um, the actual dying process may only last um, a few weeks or days. You know, um, but it's it's very challenging to support the families through, first of all, the guilt that their culture is trying to put on them. You know, when other people come in, we used to call it the Chicago relatives arrive. The family has watched this process. They've begun to understand it, and they're accepting of what's happening, and then the relatives come from out of town who only see the end product, and they see a person dying, and they think, well, why aren't they feeding them? Well, why aren't they doing this this fluid, this IV thing that we see everybody else get? They would, they would be better for a while. This is wrong. Um, and so we find that the family are the ones that usually step up and say, no, no, no. We know what we're doing here. There's a different thing happening. Yes. And they become the teachers, but we have to support them. And, right. you know, it's, it's hard, but it's, I mean, it's that common that we have a name for it. Yeah. We call it the Chicago relatives um, because they just didn't see the process, right? This may seem like a weird question, but why do you still feel compelled to do this? Uh, Well, I think part of it is um, I enjoy it. I feel like it's such a part of me that as long as I'm physically able to do it, I want to be able to be a part of that, that work. But also I have found the perfect job where I work 
as a an add-on. I'm a PRN, as they call it. So if you know, if my manager sends me a message or calls me and says, you know, on the next schedule we've got someone that's going to be on vacation. Can you work this day, that day, that day? Or somebody calls in sick, or somebody needs a day off for a doctor's visit, or whatever. I'm given the option. I can say yes, or I can say no. And if I have a vacation planned, a trip, um, I can say no. I'll be gone. But when I come back, I'll be available. So it's perfect. I get to control how much I work. Yeah. I'm never told you have to say yes. Um, now, there's a certain expectation that I'm not going to say no all the time. Um, but I never have that problem. I work plenty. The other thing is, for me anyway, the fact that I work and can make good money, because nurses make a decent salary, um, I can have money that is immediately available to me. I don't have to take it out of retirement fund. And it funds these trips, like coming here. Um, these are not vacations. These are now part of my life. Yeah. This is my life plan, that I will spend a certain amount of time visiting you or visiting my daughter, your sister who lives in France, um, or be available to go and, and have new experiences, go hiking, which I've always loved, um, or see a new part of the world. That's now part of my life because yeah. I'm finished raising children. I'm, you know, Those things are no longer what I have to devote myself to. So now instead of devoting myself to resting in retirement, that sounds bizarre to me. Yeah. Um, I have no desire to sit down and rest. I would much rather be out doing things. Yeah. And part of what I enjoy doing, and I've been allowed to have that money and the opportunity to earn the money, um, that gives me that freedom. And well, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. <laughs> I love that you've taken all the, uh, so many of the grandkids on these epic journeys. Like you took two of my nephews to Scotland and you know, took one nephew to like, uh, Porto and, you know, uh, didn't you go to Spain or something. We went to Barcelona, yeah. Lisbon, Porto, and in between shot over to France right. and saw Nicole. Yeah. Um, and you've got these, these epic journeys planned and, and things going on with the, with your multitude of grandchildren, which I think is a really cool thing. I would, I can only imagine if like your mom, my grandmother had been like, Hey, let's go to San Francisco, you know, or something mm -hmm. like that. What a cool, what a cool thing to, uh, I've talked to some of the nieces and nephews, my nieces and nephews, your grandkids about this. Like, there's a moment when you realize in your life that your parent is is a human being. It's just like <laughs> they're a, your mom is a girl who grew up into a person and just had kids. And it's not like there's some other thing. You otherize your parents when you're mm -hmm. a kid as these people who should be. They were never young. They know all their. They know everything. They've got it all together. And you realize at some point, oh no, that's just a person. And I, I remember having the conversation with one of my nephews about you specifically. Like, look, your grandma. Don't listen to what your parents say about your grandma. Your grandma is a fascinating lady. She's been through <laughs> a lot of shit. Think about her life and what she does for a living and how she's done. And that like, I mean, the fact that you walked on the uh, El Camino de Santiago by yourself at age 67, that's not something a lot of people do in any stage of their life, but particularly not, you know, a grandmother, a mother of six, who's you know will not retire from her job but has this spiritual quest in her mind and like pursues it so like i was trying to explain that to one of the kids and it, it just all of a sudden 
you could the see light the bulb. light go on like <laughs> holy shit my grandma's like a really cool lady and just this cool person that like if i met her at a job she would be one of my favorite people to see you know and it, it, it that's the thing i've worked with enough older people and enough i've had enough older friends where i get that like mm-hmm. i get that my parents and other people's parents are they're just people that i would like if i knew you know in some other context or maybe i wouldn't like in some other context you know it's it's an well, interesting thing ironic or ironically the the walk the santiago um camino was part of my all part of my death education it's all related because I, I didn't wake up one day and say i want to walk the camino i had heard of it and at the time i heard of it mary and Anne marie my youngest children were still in high school, and I knew I, I couldn't get away, couldn't do something. And I just saw it as an adventure mm-hmm. um, that, you know, oh, that sounds like it would be something interesting. And I put it away in my mind. But then I had probably the, the very next time in my life that I felt like my life was, could, could end um, <clears throat> was when I, I th- had an episode of... As it turned out, it was just vertigo, but I woke up in the middle of the night one night, and I, my head was just swimming. My eyeballs were shooting all over my eyes, and um, I was vomiting, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm having an aneurysm. I'm having a stroke, whatever, you know, and had to go to the emergency room. And I had never had anything like that since the ruptured appendix back in my young years. I had had nothing that made me fear that, oh, this could, this could be the end for me. And, you know, the tests and everything found out there was no aneurysm. I didn't have a stroke. But that I did have an artery in my brain that was almost completely blocked, and they don't know why, but there's nothing that can be done to fix it. It's just there. And, you know, the doctor said, just live your life. Take an aspirin every day and keep your weight down and keep your blood pressure down, and that's it. You know, hope for the best. And so that's when I thought, you know what? I need to start thinking seriously about this bucket list that we all have, you know, and we think, well, that's going to be done later. Maybe I need to start being a little more serious about it. And so through a lot of just things, I decided I'm going to do the Camino. Mm -hmm. That was how I was going to get out there. And if I was going to have a stroke from this thing in my brain someday and it was going to prevent me from ever walking again, by golly, I was going to be able to lay in that bed and think about what did I do? You know, so the Camino became sort of my way of dealing with the possibility that I could become disabled or I could die. Um, And so I was inspired to do it, and I did it as a spiritual thing, not just a physical um, activity. But it changed my life. Tremendously, it changed my life. I became much more adventuresome, much more willing to take, you know, just say, well, why, why can't I go alone? to Spain and walk 500 miles and not speak any Spanish, which is pretty dumb, um, and and figure that I could do that. Why not? You know. So uh, there's not a whole lot now in my life that I don't think I could do if I set my mind to it. If I wanted to go to some exotic part of the world by myself, I think I could do it. So it was a it was a life changing event. Yeah. That yeah. was a lot more than just oh I'm going to go on this hike. Yeah. <laughs> And you're, I mean, you definitely encountered and faced fear in a cool way. But you also, I mean, your faith means a tremendous amount to you. It is the bedrock of how you conduct yourself as a person. And I'm 
I marvel at the faithful that that like of conviction of genuine conviction. I think that part is really interesting, but I also am, um, I don't know, enamored of or uh, very, uh, what the right word is, impressed by people who are, they're faithful and they're devoted to their faith, but they live that example. You know, that they just, because I I don't have a particular faith, but I try very hard to be kind and I think about like, okay, this person is probably having this problem. I should act this way and try to be a little bit more understanding when I can. You know, sometimes I obviously blow it, but you have seemed my whole life, even when if I was angry at you or I was some teenage angst bullshit towards you, I knew deep down you were a good human being. And I wasn't going to beat the crap out of you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you cared. You really cared about people for whether it's your faith or just your genetics or your upbringing, whatever it was, you were genuinely good. And like, you've been kind of my touchstone for what good is. You know what I mean? Like I know what an asshole is. I've seen plenty of assholes. I know where, where that spectrum stops or or begins. (laughs) I don't know that I've seen the upper limits of assholishness, but I've I've seen, (laughs) and you won't. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen the bedrock of assholishness, but I know like what goodness looks like in a human being, like what genuine, like, not to say that you're perfect or saintly, no, no. but the the achievable human goodness has been embodied in you, in, in my eyes. And, uh, you know, it's it's cool to see someone who you know of as good that has this faith that they're willing to walk 500 miles to experience more deeply. Well, I, I thank you for the affirmation. I appreciate it because I know that there are many moments in your memory and in the memory of the other children that I've raised that they would say, oh, no, that's not her. Because we we are not perfect beings, and we are all capable of being assholes. Yeah, yeah most definitely. <laughs> but to me, and I, I mean, I think it's been, once again, a process. It's something that you just work on. It never ends. But I, I kind of think of it this way. Let's say you had a violin, and you know what it can sound like. It can be beautiful, and if it's built right, it's an instrument that can bring great pleasure and enjoyment. So you have all those pieces, but if you don't put them together, then they can't really make the music the way they should. So to me, faith is what puts together whatever goodness I may have, whatever evil I may have, whatever failings I may have. It helps put it together in a way that I can still use it and I can be an instrument. And sometimes I'm not on tune, and sometimes there's a part of me that's broken. But it's the faith that can put me back together. Um, The belief that I am a child of God, the belief that I have a purpose, that I wasn't just dropped on this earth. Um, I mean, I can remember after I was starting to get well from the experience of the ruptured appendix, um, it had been, you know, a harrowing experience for everyone. And this old priest who happened to be our pastor at the time came to visit me. And he was a stern pe- priest. He wasn't a real lovey-dovey kind of priest. And he came, and I'll never forget, I don't know exactly how we got to that point in the conversation, but he literally shook his finger in my face and said, Young lady, God has saved you for a reason, and it's your job to find out why. And I've always taken that kind of serious. I mean, I do feel like there's every experience we have, 
we can use to make ourselves the person we were meant to be. And a lot of times the experiences we're given were, were sent to us. They're, we're allowed to experience them because they're going to do something good for us. Even though at the time it may seem like, you know, like my mother losing her first child and her husband seems like just awful. That's terrible. Nobody should go through that. But in the long run, it made her the person she was. It was part of who she became. So, you know, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. And, you know, it, it's always going to be that. Why should evil exist? Why should bad things happen to good people? All those questions that we all have, I think it's faith that can help us begin to understand and put that to, that piece into our life in a way that helps that violin to work. And so... I mean, I'm a visual person, so glue and a bunch of wood and some strings <laughs> make sense to me. <clears throat> and that's how I see the experiences that I've had in my life. When I get off the trolley track is when I don't accept something as a part of my life that I need to accept and incorporate. I've, I'm fighting against something. That's when I get in trouble. And that's when I have to call on my faith even stronger to get myself back in the track, you know? So it's, that's how I do it. That's how I'm, it's not anything, I'm not a saint by any means, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be a saint someday. And I'm, keep on walking, keep on heading in that direction. And when I fall down, I know exactly who I need to call on and say, okay, what do I need to learn here? What do I need to do different? How should I do this? And sometimes I'm slow. I'm stubborn about it. And I don't do it fast enough. But I'm always trying. <laughs> that's, that's my motto. Keep going. Keep learning. It never ends. And put those pieces back together. You've asked me about faith and why that's how that works in my life. And I think part of what it does for me, when I have those questions about why is this bad thing happening? Why is why is there so much evil in the world? Or why why are why why why? Why are people suffering? What's going on? Part of what my faith does for me um, is instead of saying why all the time. And I'm not going to say that I don't ask why, because I do. Um, <clears throat> but at some point, I, I have to let it go and say, I trust in God. I trust that there is a reason. I trust that somehow this is all going to come about and bring good, and that this evil and the sadness and the, the troubles are not our destiny, and it's not what this world is supposed to be at all times. And so that trust 
and being able to say, I trust, and then let it go and just walk in that trust is what makes it possible for me. If I didn't have that as something I knew I was going to come to at some point in any kind of trouble that I'm having, I would be just lost. I would be a ship without an anchor. Um, it's just that ability, and it's not something that is easy. I think it's something you ask for. It's something you you ask God to help you build that trust, um, that faith. And it's, it's grace, I guess, is the word that I would use for it. Um, it doesn't work for everybody that way, but I think that that's how we're meant to work. Um, that's how I was built to work anyway. And the older I get, the more I've learned that. Just that the trust instead of the why is what is needed for me to be able to keep going and walk on. Um, I mean, you and I have been talking about this, it seems like every day mm-hmm. <laughs> for the past. So you know you know where I land on it. I won't go in, I do. <laughs> into it. But I'm, I'm, you haven't tried to change my mind, and I'm not trying to change no, yours. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I love and respect the way that you... Mm-hmm your relationship with your faith and and i think it's that that ship without an anchor uh imagery is it's not it's not entirely wrong uh but from a a perspective a ship without an anchor isn't exactly the worst thing in the world either at least i hope not because uh if if you know me or if you've listened to this show before you might perceive that I am something of a ship without an anchor and to listen to this like um, very informed woman, my mother, uh, explain her um, her very thoughtful life and the way that you've you've taken influence and and information and education and experience and and course corrected your life over and over again to to, to head in a direction is a very beautiful thing and it uh makes me wonder how in the hell am i this way <laughs> because you're so together in these ways and and what i no, tend to think about that way <laughs> well there, there are two people that i think uh one i knew a little and one i did not know at all that uh, that i kind of want you to tell me about one of them in particular your father ah. who uh i feel like you know i never met the guy and they're I don't always hear the most glowing review of him. I know he was kind of a pathological liar and was like kind of a storyteller craziness, but he was also very impulsive and very uh, just sort of, I don't know if wild quite sums him up, but there, there's a lot about him that fascinates me. And I, I feel like maybe genetically I might've picked up some of his, <laughs> his uh, quirkiness. Do you mind telling me some stories about your dad? Well, my dad was the product of his environment. Um, he was the only child. Um, and his mother, I can remember clearly as a young, maybe, you know, 10 year old, 12 year old, whatever. I can remember her telling me I only had one child and I didn't want him. Shit. She never wanted to be a mother. And from what I have heard from other people is that other people raised my dad. And he had a very good father. He seemed like, from the things I've heard, he was a very good man. But that my father was this little boy that just never had his mother and and was raised by aunts and 
you know, people like that. So he was a product of that. And as maybe as a consequence, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know if that's true, but I feel like that kind of made him um, not have very good boundaries about what was right and wrong Mm -hmm. and about where to find pleasure and what was acceptable and what wasn't. So he was a very addicted person. He had multiple addictions. You know, when he was younger, he was addicted to, um, he, he loved to go to a fire and he loved to watch a fire. And so then he, he would set fires so that he could go fire, go to with the fire truck, you know, and follow it. Um, he was a heavy drinker at times. Um, you know, if there was something you could get addicted to, he got addicted to. He was never addicted to drugs um, because I don't think they were available as much back in his day. But he became a gambler. Um, he gambled in any way he could. He gambled. And so my growing up years were filled with one day we'd have a shopping trip and I'd get maybe a new blouse and a new pair of shoes. And, you know, and there was all this excitement. And then the next day my mother would have to be working more because we didn't have any money to pay the mortgage or pay the rent. I mean, pay the for food. Um, because he would, he always made sure he had a job where he handled money. You know, whether it was collecting money, he, he delivered jewel tea for a long time, door-to-door kind of products, you know, and he would have to gather the money. And then later on, he delivered newspapers. Um, they would come on the train from Chicago, and he would deliver them to the newspaper boys that were going to deliver them, and he would take them to the bars and the hotels where they sold papers. But he was always responsible for money and accountability, and he would use that money <laughs> to gamble. And if he didn't win back what he needed to be giving to his boss, my mother would have to... Plug it in, or he would lose his job and go to jail. And in her mind, you know, well, I, I can't have that happen, so I have to do this. And he, she would bail him out. So it was that always that process going on in our lives until um, one day, and I, you know, there's a longer story to it, but one day it turned out that he was in debt by, oh, like maybe $10,000, which it, you know, to us, that was an enormous amount of money. And he had been borrowing money more than ever. And he was borrowing it from sources in Chicago that, you know, would, I would say probably were part of the mafia. I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure, but I feel like they were. Um, so anyhow, my mother said to this, finally got to that point and said, I cannot rescue this time. I can't. By that time, my twin brother and I were seniors in high school, and so things were settling down for her. She was able to work full-time. And so she just said, you have to go. You have to leave. And so he did. He moved to Chicago and lived in the YMCA Hotel, downtown Chicago. But shortly after he left, there was a bank robbery in a town not too far away from us because it actually ended up in our newspaper. And that was big news, you know, a robbery. Oh, my gosh, a bank robbery. And they even had a drawing of the person that they saw do this. Well, right after that, my father shows up and claims that he has met this rich man that helped him pay off all his debts. And it was this cockamamie story that we were ready to accept until 
He was driving a car that he had rented that was the same car that was described in the robbery. And the picture had a very similar... My father had very deep, deep wrinkles in his face. And he also had a very receding hairline, but curly hair. And that was what the picture looked like. And I remember saying to my mom, that's dad. I think he robbed that bank. And she would say, no, he would never do that. And she just wouldn't hear it. Well, what were we supposed to do? Was I supposed to march into the police station and say, here, I think this is my dad? So we didn't. We didn't say anything. And I went off to nursing school and, you know, my father would come and visit me at the nursing school from his where he lived, and sometime I'd go downtown and see him. So we had, you know, a, more of a relationship than the rest of my siblings because I was there. But my senior year in nursing school, my brother calls me one day and says, well, we have a new addition to our family. And I thought, whoa, wait, nobody was pregnant that I knew of, you know. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we have a bank robber in the family. And it turned out my father had gone back to the same bank and attempted to rob it again. And the story in the newspaper almost reads like, you can't make up this stuff, you know, because he walked up and down in front of the bank without anything covering his face. They knew him. They saw him, and they knew he was coming in. So but when he came in and tried to rob the bank, literally the clerk said, since you were here the last time, <laughs> we have a timer on our money. I mean, it was just, I, I've never been able to really be sure in my head that he didn't do it just so he could get caught because he was not comfortable with having that on his mind that he had actually robbed a bank in his lifetime. So he did end up going to prison um, and it was devastating for us in a small town. Well, I wasn't there anymore. I was in nursing school in Chicago and I didn't have to deal with it as much as my mom did, but it was hard. But when all was said and done, when he got out of prison, my mother said he could come back home. They had never divorced. She had never considered herself a single person, um, never dated, never did anything like that. So she said, I'll give you another chance. And But if you show one sign that you're starting this stuff again, you're out of here. That's it. Well, they had two good years. He came home. Um, they visited all of us kids. My brothers, two of them were in the military, so they would go visit wherever they were stationed. They would come down to Mississippi and see me. They really kind of had what we would all like to think our parents had all along. And then my father got very sick very quick. One day he was healthy, and the next day he had um, bruises, and he had blood in his urine and things. And so, you know, over about a three- or four-day period, it became very obvious that he had a very serious something going on. I came up from Mississippi and brought the kids, I mean, your, your older brother and sister, and we moved into my mom's house so that I could be with my dad. And um, so all of a sudden, here he was. He was a dying man. He had leukemia, probably. He would not allow them to do the tests that, you know, a bone marrow that would tell him. He wouldn't allow them to transfer him to a larger hospital. He said, nope, if this is it, this is it. This is where I'm going to die. I'm not going anywhere. But in those last, I guess probably it might have been two days, he asked my mom, would she have this priest come from the Benedictine Abbey where my brothers went to school? He liked that one priest, and he said, have him come see me. 
Well, my mother got on the phone immediately, of course, and the priest came right away, and my father went to confession, probably the first time that he had ever really done that as a sincere confession, you know? They went to communion together, um, and then the next day he died. He was talking to us, and then all of a sudden he had a bleed in his brain, and in an hour he was gone. Um, I've always related that death to the fact that my whole life I knew my mother prayed for my father, prayed that, you know, he would go to heaven someday, prayed that he would, you know, have some kind of a metanoia. Um, And he did, right at the very last. And I've always thought of him as the man that we read about in Scripture when the vineyard, the man that owned the vineyard, had hired all these workers, and he told them what their pay for the day would be. And so the workers that came first got paid that amount. But the ones that came at the very end also got paid that amount. And there was a lot of jealousy, and why? how come? They haven't done all the work that we did. And the parable of that story, my father was the one that came to the vineyard late. Hadn't always worked for it. But he got the same reward. I felt like, you know, he, he, he was the answer to my mom's prayers. Hmm. So, but living with him, yeah. Um, I, I'm very careful about addiction. I'm, hmm. I feel like I'm vulnerable. I think that part is in my genes. And it possibly is out there with other members of our family. Because um, now we know more about addiction, sure. that there is, you know, a, a fam- family genetic thing um but he was you know i don't remember him ever telling me that he loved me ever he was not an affectionate man in that way he was very flirtatious and friendly with people and loved to just bullshit you know (laughs) but um as far as being a a part of my life that i saw as nurturing i you know in all fairness to him i have to say i never i never felt it i never felt it how old was he when he died? He was only 60, 60, I think he had just turned, or he was going to turn 61. So he was young. Yeah. He was young. But his life had always been just, you know, yeah. one crisis after the other. <laughs> yeah, he, had, uh, he accidentally ran someone over in his car. He hit, he was going through an intersection on a side street, you know, in a residential neighborhood. And he didn't see this motorcycle coming. And the motorcycle had the right-of-way. And my dad pulled out, and the young man on the motorcycle hit my dad's car. And it threw him over, you know, the top of the car and uh, to the ditch, the curbing. And he died. And that devastated my dad. My dad died within a year of that. And I feel like, you know, if you believe in stress as Mm, as something that can trigger disease, it did. He told me a story about um, the father of that the guy who died on the motorcycle and your dad. Yeah, well, my dad knew the young the young man. He was one of his former um, paper boys that he delivered papers to. So he knew the boy and he knew his dad. Um, And the dad was very angry, very much angry at my father um, because he felt like my father killed his child because he wasn't paying attention, he wasn't driving properly. You know, it was my dad's fault. He did pull out. Um, So this man was very angry. And 
at the time that my dad was in the hospital, and remember I said it wasn't very long. He was probably only there five, six days. It, we were small town, small hospital, only a couple of doctors. This boy's father was also in the hospital, same hospital, at the same time, same doctor. So the doctor knew the connection. He knew the things going on. He knew my father was going to die. And the boy's father had had a heart attack. And I think the doctor recognized that was stress, that was anger, that was all these things. And he saw this as an opportunity to bring these two men together. So he asked both men if they would be willing to sit down and talk to one another. And they did. And from what I understand, there was a reconciliation where some of that anger was put to rest because my father was able to -to face-to-face say to this man how sorry, how much it had pained him, how how responsible he felt, and just express his deep sorrow. Um, And I thought that was a very smart doctor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very smart. What a story. Mm -hmm. Uh, We... uh, we could be on here for hours and hours. <laughs> uh, I don't want to do that to you because I know you got to catch a plane soon. But um, these stories of like death and redemption and genuine compassion and concern for other people and just kind of paying attention, being present to this crazy thing that we're living through uh, is it's a gift for me to be able to just get you on on tape, as it were. I mean, I've, I've, I wanted to do this with my dad before a podcast was a thing. I always thought like, well, I would really like to have some of his stories on, mm-hmm. on tape. Um, and I never did, you know, I did, I, he well, and I you barely, were so young. Yeah. But he and I, I mean, we just didn't have this sort of, I couldn't form sentences for my dad, much less ask him, well, hopefully these have been coherent questions, but anyhow, I, I'm, I'm feel privileged to have been able to do this with you. So thank you. But, um, there was something I thought about. Um, I've thought about it before. I don't know if you and I have talked about it, um, but you know, you you're 75, and you know the likelihood that you'll make it to 100, you know, or that I'll make it to 60, are you know there's there's iffy factors in that. And you and I maybe hang out once a year, you know, maybe once a year, which is, you know, that's just the way. Right. The cookie gets smashed into little Hopefully pieces. Hopefully, at least once a year. <laughs> yeah, and you know, so like it, we've it's been a while since you and I hung out. You mm-hmm. know, before this, so I'm wondering, do I have you know, is it gonna be 20 more times that we get to see each other? Is it gonna mm-hmm. be? You know, who knows? Who the knows what it's gonna be? start getting more and more real to yeah. me. So yeah. it's it's precious to me yeah. to have been and able to spend a week with you and and Tiffany, and it's like it's beautiful to see the relationship you and my wife have. You seem to really like my dog, which is cool, uh, and I'm I'm just grateful to have been raised by you. So thanks, well, thank mom. Thank you. I love you very much. Yeah, I love you too. This has been a the, an equal um, opportunity for me as well that I looked forward to, and it was intentional. And our visits will always be intentional. Yeah. Um, because I know they're precious. Because you're a wanderer, <laughs> and I have to catch up you a cup catch up to you. I know you're not going to come home for Christmas every year. Yeah. So if I don't make this effort to catch up with you, then we might not catch up as often. So yeah. I promise I will keep doing it as long as I can. And I do know in my heart that you will do the same when I can't do it anymore. Yeah. You will be intentional. You can cover it. Yeah. 
I can. I can count on you. Cool. Well, thank you, Mom. I love you. I love you, too. <laughs>